electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The toothpaste is out of the tube and a recession is coming. Don't scream at the TV. Those are the words of our economist who says two things are happening at the same time and there's no escaping it. She's here to make her case momentarily. Plus, it was our market guest's table pounding fat pitch by and then came last week's Fed meeting. He tells us the trade, what's changed and what he is bullish on from here. And shares of Coinbase have already tripled this year and an upgrade today says another 30 percent to go. But the industry very much still in limbo and some argue a Bitcoin ETF will hurt their prospects. We'll talk about all of it with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. We begin with today's markets. Dom Chu with the numbers and some superlatives to mention, Dom. Superlatives because we've got a record high in certain parts of the market. Mega cap technology for one with the Nasdaq 100. But among the three major indices, Kelly, we get to put some stars up here today, or at least one star. For the Dow Industrials, right now near session highs up one half of 1%, 37,492, because we've hit a record intraday high for the Dow Industrials in today's trade so far, so a big move there. The S&P 500 is up about one half of 1%, 4,760. We're now just roughly one and a half percent below record highs, but we have hit a high for the year. So we'll put a little check mark next to them. And the Nasdaq composite, 14,968, up one half of 1%. Again, the mega cap Nasdaq 100 has hit a record high, but the Nasdaq composite, a high for the year. So all time and then highs for the year for the other two major indices. The Dow Industrial is really leading the way higher so far today. Watch that. This is the season for retail. And a lot of these consumer-focused retail names have had a rough year in 2023 but have been trying to stage a near-to-medium-term comeback off the lows that we saw this fall. Among those top performers in the S&P 500 today, Estee Lauder up 4.5%, VF Corporation trying to bounce back from the cyber incident news from yesterday up 3.5%, Etsy, eBay, PayPal Holdings, financial technology-oriented companies that are all moving to the upside there. So keep an eye on those consumer-focused stocks. And speaking of fintech, the stock move of the day Buy now, pay later in a firm. Up 15.5%, $50.40 right there, surging to a high for the year. Why? Because it's expanding its partnership with Walmart to offer its buy now, pay later services at self-service kiosks at Walmart in the coming weeks and months. So watch a firm shares big tie-up with a big retailer. That's what's driving the action there. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. That's funny in light of the big journal profile about that just uh, this week. Dom, for now, thank you very much, our Dominic Chu. Let's talk big picture now as we're trying to get a clearer read on the consumer as we move through the holiday shopping season. Steve Leisman has the results of the latest CNBC All-America survey. Also with us today is Francis Donald, chief uh, global chief economist and strategist at Manulife Investment Management. Welcome to both of you. It's nice and cozy here all together. Um, Steve, what are we learning? Click, click, gift. Hmm. That's what I'm saying today. After a two-year slump before uh, below the pandemic high, online shopping made a comeback this holiday season. Take a look at the numbers. CNBC All-America survey finding 57% of Americans naming online shopping as their top one or two destinations for Christmas gifts, up from 51% last year. Big box stores down three points to 18% non-chain store sales, uh, unchanged at 16%. 18% when we started, look at this, 
Kelly. Hmm. Wow. I think you had fewer kids. Maybe I had more hair when we first started <laughs> asking this question. It's, it's, it, was, it was 18% back in 2006, and now look at that community. You see that little dip there? They hit that for the pandemic high, 50% down, down for two years, and now back above for a new high that we had. Those spending more include women age 50 plus, income lower than 30,000, no investments in the stock market, income 30 to 50,000, and those spending under $200. All that suggests to me that people may have uh, glommed on uh, online shopping looking for bargains, keeping costs down amid inflation here. While Americans differ over how much they spend online, they don't much argue about where they spend. And you know the answer to this when Amazon unchanged this year, 74%. Walmart did get up four points, but I don't know if you even call it a competitor at 16 points. Uh, interesting to see the specialty goods stores like, like uh, Etsy. And by the way, local websites also in, in that group there up by six points. 31% say they're uh, going to use um, uh, debt, which is kind of unchanged and, and really not a big deal in terms of the use of debt there. But that buy now, pay later, which is what uh, Dominic was just talking about, 10% of all shoppers. We uh, have not asked that question before, so we don't know how that compares comparatively, but not bad Sign of the entry times. for the first year. Courtney tells me she's been talking about this for three years and everybody's paying attention. <laughs> well, I think after the Cyber Monday and Black Friday numbers, when that was the clear bright spot and the question is whether right. this is just people kind of borrowing from the future in a bad trend or, you know, just a different innovative way of using credit. So a at a time when, when interest rates were super high. It's interesting to me. I, I don't know that I personally anymore think of online as a place to go for a bargain. Yeah, it's Amazon's just, not that cheap. Amazon's sure. not, well, not that, but, but it's just like you do that to sort of see, well, is there a cheaper way to do it or a better way to do it? But it's also just a, a way to shop, convenience. It's not so, a directed way to shop. Real quickly then, before I, we bring Francis into this, then would you say the takeaway from the All America survey is that consumers are feeling stretched or that they're feeling more flush this holiday More season? flush? Here, here, the, the, the takeaway for me has been lousy, lousy views on the economy but hardy spending plans. Francis, what about you? I know you're a little bit more cautious, worried about a combo of things, the consumer being one of them. There's still time left. You know, economists get pigeonholed into this economist or, or this recession or no recession view. We have a recession base case. Things can change. But more important is when do you start trading that? We've just had a formidable pivot from the Fed. We have other central bankers trying to push back against that, but indicating no more rate hikes on the horizon. Inflation is slowing. The data is still strong. So we're in tactical Goldilocks, and two things can be true at the same time. You can be concerned about the recession ahead and know it's not yet time to trade it. How So remind me how long you've had this view that it was coming. So, for instance, 2023 then was what kind of year? Too, too long, Kelly. We've yeah. had this view for too long. And I think the, the big mistake that a lot of economists made in the 2023 recession call was not in saying, oh, this time's exactly the same. It was in actually thinking that the lags in the economy would be shorter. Mm. The average time that it takes for these rate hikes to work their way through is about two years. The make or break for this economy to really throw out that recession call, I need the next three to six months to not have a rise in the unemployment, to not see a consumer materially pull back, to not see CapEx decline. Now, expecting that to happen earlier, that was the mistake. Not recognizing how pro-cyclical fiscal would be, that's what landed a lot of economists in the 2023 recession camp. And if, we get, if we're talking six months from now and we've not seen this develop, then yes, this time is remarkably different, Kelly, and we'll have to change our tune. But we have not yet seen that relationship between rates and the economy break just yet. Steve, what do you think? Well, I do sort of land in the camp of this time is very different. And I just think that 
so much of the inflation improvement we've had has been the result of supply side coming back and not much in terms of the Fed interest rates biting. And I think that the analog, the reason the analogs don't work is because you're going to be hard pressed to find a time when you had zero and then five and a half. So much of the economy went in on that zero bit. So you have mortgage rates down below three. You've got, you know, still car loans are, are, are playing out over that period of oh, time. Oh, I even think about all of Wall Street financial private say. equity. I mean, entire the corporates, industries. the private equity. Yeah. So I, I don't think you want to rule out recession, but I do think we're in a bit of an interesting foot race here. And the foot race is as follows. And I don't know that Francis would disagree with this, that it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a foot race between the Fed lower, and the market lowering rates and the refinance cliff. Yes. Right. So do the people right now who are sitting there with two and three and four percent coupons or, 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 or debt have to refinance into seven, eight, nine and ten or five, six and seven. And I think those outcomes are very different as to whether or not we see uh, extended bankruptcies, extended layoffs and that kind, and extended retrenchment of business spending. Business spending. Obviously, yeah. homeowners don't have to, you know, they're just sitting pretty on their, you know, two and a half or three percent mortgages if they have them, which is another big reason, Francis, some people think we've been able to dodge a bigger impact. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we get caught up in this recession question, but I work with asset managers every day. They're not asking me, are you recession or no recession? They're asking me, what's more likely, Francis, a recession or a reinflation of those prices? Because that's the bond trade. They're asking me, mm. Which central bank cuts first? And as much as we're talking about U.S. recession, when I'm anywhere else in the world, whether I'm in Europe, Canada, Asia, they don't need to be convinced that they're in a hard landing because the rest of the world is very firmly in recessionary type of environments. So the absolute trade, recession or no recession, is very different from the relative trade, which is where in the world is the cleanest dirty shirt. Yeah. That's still the U.S., even if you have a recession. No, problem. not least because other central banks are... T- so we have some headlines from uh, Bostic who says kind of to this, this trade-off you're mentioning that there's still a ways to go on inflation, even though the Fed has made tremendous progress. Um, He expects inflation to come down slowly and unevenly, expects a tight labor market going forward, watching the three- and Mm. six-month inflation figures. Wages, he says, are a trailing indicator and have to make sure output does not become too weak. But I would say this kind of leans in the direction, Steve, of what they've all been saying, which is don't be so quick to assume, you know, 25 rate cuts by July or whatever. Yeah, I I can tell you the Fed is a little perplexed at the market reaction and they, they come on. They know they don't know the market by now. You give them an inch, they take a mile. I, I think what they're thinking about is: was there a different way to calibrate the message, to get less of a Not of an extreme market reaction? The the dots are an interesting thing. It's a bit like they're trapped in a web of their own transparency. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's a mixed metaphor in a lot of different ways. But in any event, they are. They have to put the dots out, and I can't emphasize enough. The dots are not policy. They're an artifact of 19 different things. The, you know what they did in terms of policy on Wednesday? Nothing. They changed one word, one word. was it? Only one word. Relate, now, they did make a nice comment on inflation, but only the addition of any was the collective policy of the committee. Although you could argue that the change of the committee and Powell has normally been kind of hawkish in his pressers, but wasn't so much, I guess. The, well, I think the that reflects a change in the chair from being hawkish to being more in the center. Which is a change, right? That so I, is think, a change. I think the market interprets change. all of this. But why do they take three rate... I'm not saying it's wrong. The market could end up being right. Why do they take three rate cuts to make it into six? 
Why do they take a 4.6% year-end Fed funds rate forecast and turn it into 385? I think it's because... Which is sort of the same thing. And I'd be curious what Francis thinks. I don't think it's just because of the Fed meeting, but it's the inflation data coming down the way. When you have, you know, the recent trend in kind of core PC, or whatever you want to call it, approaching 2 3%, you know, I think they view it more as the Fed's going to step back from that. And if that trend continues, which the market says is saying it's going to, then they could start doing more cuts. This is semantics. I mean, it's interesting to look at March. I think March is too early for the first rate cut and the Fed's probably pushing back against that. But look at where we are. Every major central bank has said there will be no more rate hikes. The entire discussion is when are they going to cut? Can you imagine even six months ago that we'd be sitting here talking about what does the next rate cutting cycle look like? I can because it was supposed to have started by now. (laughs) We've only had four of these in my lifetime. Macro matters most at inflection points. This is a massive inflection point for investors, whether it's March or June, July, or even September. Sure, it'll matter for tactical portfolios, but bond rates are going Mm -hmm. downwards. And for most investors, all that cash on the sidelines, those cash, uh, MFFs, those are not going to be interesting in this next phase of the cycle. I think that's an interesting development because cash is suddenly trash. It was such a great thing before, right? I was was getting those 5% of the money markets. Mm -hmm. That's going to come down. My one years, we were on this show and we said, one year, the, the great thing about one year is it's only one year. The terrible thing about one year, it's only one year. So you've got to make another decision coming up. The other thing that's interesting to me is all the folks who said that we were going to, um, I don't know what the word is, have an apocalypse in terms of the ability of the government to fund itself. All of a sudden, we're funding it below 5%. Well, the more bond yields fall, the less we'll hear about that as well. Although still at these levels, it will be a challenge. For now, we'll leave it there. Thank you both very, very much. Francis Donald and Steve Leisman both joining me here today. My next guest is changing his market outlook after the huge rally in stocks following the Fed pivot last week. He says small and mid-cap value are no longer the table-pounding fat pitch buy they were in October. Joining me now is Charlie Babrinskoy, vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel. Correct me if I'm wrong. Charles, I, I, I don't even know what to say. Well, what you should say is what um, important economists have always said, which is when the facts change, you need to change your outlook. And um, that is what has happened. We have gone from, I want to be careful here, table pounding fat pitch buy, which is what small cap value stocks were, to approximately fairly valued right now. And that's not the end of the world. That doesn't mean bubble. That doesn't mean overpriced. That doesn't mean sell all your stocks. It means that our expectation is that returns from here will be normal, which for small cap value is kind of 10%, not bad, but that we are no longer ridiculously cheap. And we were ridiculously cheap in October. So what what does that walk us through tactically what you're doing now as a result? So first of all, we don't think it's smart to trade tactically and and to come in and out of markets. When people do that, they tend to come in at the wrong time. They tend to buy when everyone's happy and bullish, and then they tend to sell when markets are down. So that's the wrong thing to do. But what you should do is look at valuation. And when we look at our calculation of the intrinsic value of our portfolio, that was a 36% discount in October of of this year. 36% our stocks were trading for 36% less than what we thought they were worth. Today, that's about 23%. It's not terrible, but it's about average historically. So, you know, the endowment effect says that we probably like our stocks that we own, maybe even more than we should. So let's say that that's about an average discount to intrinsic value. That means now is not the time to do anything dramatic. 
but it's not the table pounding buy time that it was four months ago. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what, you know, so it, it almost sounds like what you're saying as a result, Charlie, is that you're just kind of sitting tight. We're showing some of the companies you've liked historically, Mohawk, Goldman, Bank of Oklahoma. So are you sitting tight here then and just kind yeah. of wait, waiting this out? You're not, you know, going long the MAG-7 or something like that. No, that would be really bad. No, that I do not think you should do. That is the one. I'm glad you brought that up. The one area that is still overpriced, maybe even bubble priced, would be a large cap tech. We we are worried about the Magnificent Seven, who have underperformed this last month. Just one month doesn't make a long term trend, but um, those stocks are are seriously overpriced, and they, as you know, have a huge impact on the S and P 500. So we would say I would personally be modestly bearish on the S and P 500 and call me fairly priced for small cap and mid cap value. Which kind of goes back to the questions about the Russell 2000 versus the S&P and, and a few things like that. You know, again, I know you're not a big fan of kind of investing more in the indexes broadly, but you do think that that headwinds for the Magnificent Seven will keep the S&P from shining more brightly from here on out? That's exactly right. People have been hiding in the Magnificent Seven. If you thought a recession was coming, you avoided cyclical stocks, you avoided cyclical sectors, you avoided banks, you avoided oil, you avoided consumer discretionary, and you bought things that you thought would do fine no matter what the economic outlook. Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, those names tend to do fine in any economic economy. And so people have been hiding in the Magnificent Seven. And I think that trade is going to unwind as people realize we are probably not going to have the recession that the bond market has been telling us was a certainty for the last 18 months. Just to go back, so the Russell 2000 value is up 21% since October. So finally, there's been this kind of amazing catch-up trade in a sector that's one of the worst performing for, you tell me, the last decade. Was that it? Was that six-week move? Did, have you already missed it? Is it time to, to now put that you know, back on the shelf for another five or 10 years? No, because since 1926, small cap stocks have outperformed the broad market and value stocks have outperformed the, the broader market. And so small cap value has been for almost 100 years a wonderful place to be. And, it, and again, our expectations for this sector are still fine. Call it 10 percent. It's just not ridiculously cheap the way it was in October. We have good names. that are, the, the, the benchmark is probably trading around 14 times right now. It was around 12, 11 in October. That was silly in this kind of environment. So just I, I want to be careful. Don't go out and sell all your stocks today because we're now at fairly valued. We're just no longer at stupid cheap the way we were in October. No longer at stupid cheap. Charlie, thank you as always for joining us. Always good to check in with you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Charlie Wabrinskoy with Ariel. Coming up, the home builders are riding a seven-week win streak now. It's their longest in over two years. In that seven weeks, they have shot up 41%. Now with housing starts at their highest level since May, is that good news fully priced in or not? We'll dive into that next. Plus, we'll speak with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong about the crypto rally and the regulatory concerns into next year and what impact a Bitcoin ETF will really have on their business. That's all ahead. As we go to break, here's a glance at the market. Sitting near session highs, Dow's up half a point, 182, a half a percent, I should say, 183 points. Um, on its way now towards the midpoint between 37 and 38,000, the S&P up a third of a percent, similar for the NASDAQ. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? 
With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. U.S. housing starts surged more than expected last month as mortgage rates fell back from their highs. Construction of new homes rose by nearly 15 percent to an annualized pace just over one and a half million. That's the highest level since May. And that in turn is boosting the builder stocks today, including Meritage, Toll and D.R. Horton. And those three names are among my next guest's top picks for 2024. He says they'll be able to weather a strong spring selling season. For more, let's bring in Joe Allersmeyer. He's a research analyst at Deutsche Bank. Joe, welcome. It's good to see you again. And uh, first of all, do you mean a strong kind of um, traditional ho- spring selling season could, could in a way be a headwind for the home builders? Thanks for having me, Kelly. Nice to be here. What I'm really talking about is if you look at this starts number today, um, look, I would be really excited to be talking about this type of number in April or May, but this is a seasonally unimportant time of year, really, for builders. We're in November really talking about uh, a, a number that is lower on a monthly basis than what we actually were building to in May, June, and July. And if we built to the same number next month, we're actually going to see a 9% sequential increase. That's how funky this data actually gets. So I'd caution people to, to kind of look at this as not necessarily indicative of a really big acceleration in uh, starts simply because rates are coming down. I would think of it more as builders are putting inventory in the ground, preparing for a more normal spring selling season. And that's going to drive really strong cash flow in the year ahead. All right. So that to you says that even the, the all-time highs we've seen for these stocks, and you've been bullish. I mean, I remember well our, our previous conversations where you've said, you know, they will continue to perform. And that sounds like today's data point just uh, underscores that. I totally agree. I mean, look, I, I've answered this question now, I think, three times on the program. What what do we do with the stocks at the all-time highs here? The stocks are at all-time highs. The book values, though, uh, are also at all-time highs. So if you look at the valuations, yes, they're closer today than they were earlier in the year, but valuation on book is actually still pretty attractive relative to some of the uh, stronger returns on inventory and returns on equity we've ever seen in the builders. You know, We put out this Outlook report two weeks ago. We've had a lot of discussions with people about how to conceptualize valuation at a time when cash flows are much, much stronger, balance, balance sheets are in much better shape than they've ever been. And so should we really be valuing these things on the historical cost of inventory, or should we start to look at them more on the basis of future cash flows like any investor does with any company? We think that that's the right way to think about it, uh, and we're looking forward to having more of those conversations as builders decide to continue to drive good free cash flow by not necessarily reinvesting in land, uh, but returning cash to shareholders through buybacks. What's the biggest pushback you're getting on, on your bullishness? 
I think the biggest pushback, it's it's the typical, I would almost call it a lazy thesis of, look, this is how it's happened in the past. The stocks get expensive. People start talking about re-rating. The builders do something stupid. They get <laughs> undisciplined. They buy something. Uh, it really does actually depend on what the builders do from here and not necessarily what investors decide to, how do investors decide to think about it. The builders, it's actually totally the balls in their court. If they decide to say, we'll be more disciplined, uh, not necessarily chase bad land deals just to continue to pursue growth, but actually shrink the business potentially uh, on purpose to to drive higher value per share and higher free cash flow per share. That would really force investors' hands around valuation. And that's interesting because our last home builders guest a couple of days back said he thought the land piece of this was really important. He mentioned that they're using, for instance, options. And it's a little bit more of a asset light strategy, but it sounds like discipline in that area is one of the top concerns. For investors. And in some ways, this whole discussion reminds me a lot of talking about the oil companies and the ways that they traditionally uh, invest in, and uh, spend over their cycles. Absolutely. I really like that you drew that comparison. I mean, looking at options, it's great because you can put down 10% of the whole value of a deal instead of having to put down 100%. That's certainly a more capital light way to do it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing better deals. You could put down 10% on a terrible deal, True. for that matter. Or you could do 20 times as many deals at 10% and be putting more capital down. What I really think is important about what you just said, though, is in the oil and gas industry, and not that I'm an oil and gas expert here, but capacity was not the best incremental use of capital uh, when when it came time to, to looking at dividends and increasing leverage and doing dividends and buybacks. I think it's the same thing here. Uh, home builders should really look at the constraints that they, they themselves are talking about on the labor and materials and land side and say, is it really the best use of capital to go and pursue uh, what is likely to be higher and higher cost deals hmm. uh, when our stocks are something that's relatively attractive in yeah. our view. Or again, almost reminds me of the insurance industry where you can kind of give up pricing to chase, you know, or keep market share and, and the, you know, how Buffett was always like, no, don't. Uh, my quick, Joe, final question observation is we, when the Fed pivots, builders traditionally outperform. That's exactly what's happened over the past six weeks. They are up, you know, 41 percent in seven weeks. Do you worry if we, if we kind of ignore all the great fundamentals you outlined, just talk about the technicals of it, that this move is simply the you know, operating off of the Fed pivot and nearly out of gas? Yeah, and this has been a crazy year. If you look at the charts just from a year-to-date perspective, they went up and then they went down and then went up again. So the 40% or so, I think I heard you quote on the lead-in, uh, that's off of a trough that came off of a, a, um, a peak earlier in the year and rates kind of went up and they went down. So I don't know that I'm really looking at the relative strength of the stocks or anything like that. But if you look at the price to tangible book value multiples, we will acknowledge that they are towards the upper bound of a typical uh, valuation range for the stocks. And that would mean sort of into next year, they do face a little bit of a valuation headwind. So I wouldn't expect the stocks are up you know, 100% next year uh, because coming into this year, the price to tangible book values were indeed very, very inexpensive. We don't have that condition going into 24. Joe, appreciate your time. Good to check in with you. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Joe Allersmeyer Meyer from Deutsche Bank. Coming up, shipping giants are beginning to reroute their vessels around southern Africa to avoid the Red Sea. Shipping stocks have actually benefited somewhat from the disruption because they're raising fares and adding to demand for ships. After the break, we'll tell you what Maersk's CEO had to say about freight prices and shipping delays. The exchange is back after this. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. 
Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shipping giant Maersk is redirecting some of its vessels, now sailing around the southern point of Africa to avoid the Red Sea conflict area. The new route could add up to four weeks to a ship's journey, and that's already being reflected in shipping rates. Here's what Maersk CEO Vincent Clarick told Money Movers this morning. What we have seen uh, already in the last 48 hours is sharp increases on some, of the, on some of the spot freight rates because of fear in the market that tonnage will be short in the coming weeks and therefore that, it, that there will be a shortage of capacity as a result of these longer trade routes. We do actually believe that the international community will mobilize fast to reopen these trade routes to guarantee safe passage. And that should be something that resorbs itself in the weeks to come. So not something that should be with us for a long time, but it's something that we need to, to see actually happen. Around 12% of global trade passes through the Red Sea, including 30% of container traffic. And Goldman echoes Maersk's concerns about freight prices, saying they could see a bigger impact than even commodity prices. The firm estimating a 1% increase in oil tanker demand leads to a 5% increase in freight rates, and the effect will be bigger on end customers the longer this conflict plays out. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, President Biden gave a eulogy today at the funeral for Sandra Day Oak. Connor, former justice on the Supreme Court. Mr. Biden, who was the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee during her confirmation hearings, called the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court a pioneer who broke down barriers in the political world and the nation's conscience. Former Justice O'Connor died earlier this month at 93. The Jeff Bezos-owned Blue Origin, with a successful launch this morning of its first mission in more than a year, the new Shepard rocket, which was uncrewed, had dozens of experiments on board, reached an altitude of about 350,000 feet, returned to Earth seven and a half minutes later. There you see it taking off. Successful project there. And Ricardo the Bull, who gained national attention last week when he wandered onto the train tracks in Newark, New Jersey, uh, there's a lot of bull in New Jersey, uh, getting a little help from his friends. New Jersey Transit announced today that it's selling a stuffed animal uh, in uh, honor of uh, this uh, bull. A portion of the proceeds will go to Ricardo's care at an annual san- at an animal sanctuary. <laughs> Kelly, New Jersey, uh, you gotta love it. Can't we're gonna wait. hear from the governor. That's you know, exactly. we're gonna hear from the governor in the next hour. <laughs> Phil Murphy is going to be on Power Lunch. We're gonna ask him about this bull. If they can move that quickly on stuffed animals, they can move that quickly on a few they, other matters, I you, think. You bet. See you then, Cal. See you, Tyler. Thanks. Coming up, Coinbase shares hitting a new 52-week high today, now up 350% this year, although they're still 60% below their record highs. Up next, we'll speak with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong about the ongoing efforts to regulate crypto and what a potential Bitcoin ETF would mean for the company. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, and check out some of these crypto stats. Bitcoin is about to close out its best year since 2020. It's of more than 150%. It's giving a boost to companies like Marathon Digital, up more than 500%, and Riot Platforms nearly quintupling. MicroStrategy and Coinbase shares are quadrupled, too, this year. But will the bitcoin field boom continue into next year? Let's ask Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong, who joins us now with our Kate Rooney. Welcome to both of you, Kate. 
Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you for making time today. I want to start with some of the news this week. You're donating a million dollars as part of this massive crypto super PAC in Washington, 78 million total for congressional races coming up next year. What kind of influence are you hoping to garner here? Yeah, this has been a big moment for the crypto industry. So I personally donated, but so did a handful of other a large number of other companies in the space, actually. So raising 78 million for a super PAC is a big milestone. The goal of that pack is to elect pro-crypto and pro-innovation candidates in 2024. And there's 52 million Americans out there who have used crypto now. That's five times the number that have a union card. It's three times the number that have used an electric vehicle. And so this is a massive constituency and they don't feel like their voices are being heard in D.C. So I think it's time to uh, make sure that people know that being anti-crypto is just bad politics in D.C. So speaking of D.C., you know, Congress is one thing, Brian. Would support in that branch of the government be enough to leapfrog what's happening on the agency level? Take the SEC, for example, with lawsuits and what, frankly, really feels like animosity lately between that agency, at least, and Coinbase. Would congressional support be enough to offset that? You know, Congress could certainly help here. Um, you're correct that we have not seen a very cooperative SEC. There's been a request for clear rules. You know, Coinbase filed a formal petition to see some clear rules in the crypto industry on the areas of the law where it's not clear. And unfortunately, the SEC has been unwilling to do that. Um, so we've asked a judge to compel them to respond to that. Um, I think in the absence of the SEC acting, what we can see happen is Congress can go pass new legislation. And this is what we've seen 83% of the rest of the G20 countries go and do already. So the, U the US is actually kind of a little bit behind here. So Congress could act, um, the CFTC could step in, or the voters in 2024 could really send a clear message. And the SEC is going to have last word when it comes to Bitcoin ETF approval. That does seem to be kind of priced in at this point. Kelly mentioned Bitcoin prices this year. Some have argued when it comes to Coinbase and sort of the impact, you can't trade ETFs on Coinbase. It could be a net negative, for example, if it ended up driving flows to places like Robinhood. How should investors think about the impact of an ETF on Coinbase? Yeah, so I don't agree with that. I think the positive impact will be there for Coinbase and the industry writ large. One reason is that ETFs are going to bring in some new pools of capital into crypto from areas of the economy where people aren't able to directly trade crypto. The other important point to note is that Coinbase has been named as the custodian in I think all but one of those ETFs that have been um, filed. And so we're hoping to play a piece of that value chain as well. Brian, it's Kelly here. If I could just pick up on that. And we've spoken with Mizuho's Dan Dollov a number of times on the program who is says, yeah, it'll be a headwind for Coinbase. He thinks people will move from the ETF, maybe move off your platform. And when I said, well, what if they don't? He said, well, to your point about the custodianship and all that, maybe it's a lower margin business. Can you talk about that? You know, how profitable is kind of current, call it retail trading to Coinbase? And if you lose some of that, is the what does what remain? Is that less profitable? Yeah, so whenever there's a new technology that comes on the scene or new product, you always kind of have to ask yourself, what percent is this a substitute for the thing that came before and what percent is it a complement? And of course, it's, never, it's usually never 100% one or the other. Um, I think in this case, it's, it's mostly a complement. You know, you could, you could say it's 80-20 one way or the other or something like that. But uh, our goal with crypto is to get it plugged into all areas of the economy. We want um, the massive pools of capital out there that are in endowments and institutions pension funds, um, they should all be able to participate in this new asset class. And so I think mostly it will be a complement. We'll see large new pools of capital come into crypto. I think that's part of why we've seen Bitcoin prices be up 90 percent year to date. 
in anticipation of this. And there's also going to be a huge retail and institutional segment. They, they don't just want to own an ETF for Bitcoin. They want to actually own other crypto assets or they want to earn staking rewards on their assets or they want to actually participate in the crypto economy with stable coins and commerce and NFTs and Web3. And so those people are going to come to Coinbase and use our product directly as well. So Coinbase has a, has a role to play in all aspects of the value chain here. And Brian, finally, I want to ask you about higher interest rates and actually lower interest rates heading into next year. You've had to adjust as rates have risen and kind of taken a bite out of some of the trading activity. You've really pivoted and now about a third of revenue, was, at least in Q3, was coming from interest income, <clears throat> excuse me, on stable coin reserves. How are you going to adjust as we see interest rates potentially coming on the other side and falling next year? What's your strategy for adjusting the business in light of the macro environment? Yeah, well, a few years ago, uh, our business at Coinbase was 95% trading fees, and we made a big effort around the time we went public to start diversifying our revenue. And so we did manage to get more revenue streams in subscription and services, and you know the, the interest um, income from USD coin and, and stable coins was a big factor in the last uh, few years. So what's great is that now we, are, we have multiple sources of revenue. Some of them in a high interest rate environment go up, some of them in a low interest rate environment go up. So what that means is our revenue has started to become more predictable. That's helped us as a public company with our revenue multiples. It's been a really great story to tell uh, Wall Street. All right. We'll leave it there. We appreciate, Brian, you joining us for this today uh, discussion. Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase. Kate, thanks for bringing that to us as well. Our Kate Rooney out west. Coming up, the rally in travel stocks continues with booking holdings hitting a record high. Expedia at its highest level since May of last year. Marriott and Hilton touching record highs today. And Marriott shares pairing those gains, by the way. But the airlines, you know, they get the attention during the holidays. Can last year's flight nightmares be avoided this year? We'll ask next with the Dow of 200. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Last year's holiday travel debacle costing Southwest $140 million in government fines alone. But airlines and government agencies have since put in measures to avoid another nightmare like that this year. Phil Beau is here with the details. Phil? You know, Kelly, the question is whether or not the steps that have been put in place, not just at Southwest, but the FAA and the DOT, what they've been doing, whether or not that will pay off. And we won't know until a big storm system hits, and hopefully that doesn't happen in the next couple of weeks, because what we're going to see is a very crowded uh, period here for the airlines overall. You were looking at record-breaking travel potentially over the next week and a half, up 16% compared to last year. Once again, the FAA will open airspace along the eastern seaboard, do things like close off space flights over Florida to make sure that all of the traffic does not get uh, backed up anywhere. We could also see the first 3 million passenger day. We've never had one here in the U.S. The number of people flying has steadily increased since the pandemic. On an average daily passenger screening basis, look at the growth that we've seen here. By the way, that 2.34 million, that is above the level that was seen by the TSA back in 2019. I mentioned easing congestion. The flight levels will really increase in the next few days, and then it sloughs off as you move towards Christmas before picking up after Christmas. Part of the moves that uh, are being made by the government, the DOT working on those congested areas like New York City, trying to make sure that they have enough spacing and enough uh, staffing in place in order to handle the flights that are going in there. As you take a look at the airline stocks, remember that these guys, they were sold off big time 
all the way through the third quarter. So while they are up today and they're up about 26% since the end of October, they're nowhere close to their 52-week highs, Kelly. They're still well away from that. And that's partially because investors are looking at the airlines and saying, look, you got higher labor costs. You've got a number of other factors that are headwinds out there, including your debt levels. Is it time to get into the airline stocks for good, or is it still a trading vehicle? And I think at this point, they are mainly a trading vehicle until people are convinced that they have come out of that pandemic period and there is profitability as far as they can see. That's interesting. They've really been up sharply on the back of falling fuel prices. So they look a lot better year to date. Sure. I think the Jets ETF up 12% looks a lot better than it did a couple months ago. Um, but Phil, I, I was struck by the fact that you said that air travel this holiday season is going to be up 16% from last year. That's a pretty big one-year surge. Granted, we've put together a string of them now. Um, I, I guess they're, right. if, if we know that we should expect this kind of uh, increase, hopefully they're ready for it. I think they're ready for it. The airlines certainly are better prepared this year than they were last year. The staffing is at its highest level since 2001. You've got more pilots, more mechanics, more ramp workers. Just across the board, they have added more staffing, and they're better prepared. I think last year was partially a case, Kelly, of, look, they were coming out of the pandemic, and they knew that people wanted to fly, and they wanted to accommodate that as much as possible. Maybe they got a little bit over their skis in certain cases. All right, Phil, thank you. Uh, we hope it's uneventful for everyone all around our Phil LaBelle. Coming up next here on The Exchange, we've got three reads on the consumer. FedEx, General Mills, Micron all set to report. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade next. Welcome back. We're looking at shipping, staples, and semis in today's earnings exchange. Here with our trades is CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors. Delano, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Let's start with FedEx, which reports after the bell today. And the shares hit a 52-week high yesterday on a 10% run in just the past month. Barclays says FedEx should benefit from improvement in package demand and cost cutting and is watching for updates on its plans to merge its express and ground operations. And what do you say about the stock here? Delano, are you a buyer? Yeah, I think I, one, I, I am a buyer and I've been holding the stock for a while. And I think some of the item reasons mentioned were why. So the e-commerce trend, I think, is still favorable for FedEx. Um, the new management team has also pointed to, you know, the ability to restructure and do different things for costs. And I think they've been doing well with that. The play is to, from April, to ex expand and drive operating margin about 10%. And I think that play works out. Um, I think if you look at also the management's um, dividend repurchase plan and also their boosting of dividends, that's also pointing to the manager's belief in their plan as well. So I think one thing that can help is the drop in crude oil. That's helping a lot of, um, obviously, these, these consumer discretionary companies that are doing the packaging and shipping. And that's going to help a lot of their business segments as well. Last thing is the valuation. I think if you look at it, when it gets to price to sales, it gets roughly to about one times. Um, that's when it's possibly time to trim to, to trim a little bit of shares. Right now, it's below that. And I think that's an opportunity for buyers. If you look at the revenue, has actually been slower um, over the past few quarters. Um, I think that they could boost that a little bit, and that could be opportunity for, for investors there. All right. Amazing run this year, really. I mean, I know they've had some, their challenges, but up 63%, still below a 15 PE for what it's worth. Let's turn our attention to General Mills then, which reports tomorrow morning. That stock, different story. It's down 21% since Jan 1. RBC expects the shares to stay under pressure, pointing to slower than expected volume growth, increased pressure on the pet category, interestingly, and product disinflation because falling prices in the perimeter of grocery stores is pulling customers away from the center where prices have been stickier. 
you uh, part of the Bears on this one, Delano, or would you pick it up here on the cheap? Yeah, I am part of the Bears on this one. This was one I'm not holding, and I think there's a few reasons why. The big one that was mentioned was um, volume. So if you look at a lot of the things that you know these consumer discretionary companies are doing right now is to to boost revenue. They're they're obviously doing different things to to drive that revenue by uh, product slate, different product things. But for for them, obviously the consumer is weakening, and I think the volume is the interesting part because the price increases um, aren't going to be able to make up for that in a lot of cases. So um, you know, for me, uh, it's one that I've been fading. I think for income income um, investors that are looking for a dividend that's actually been strong for a very long time, it might be a play for them. But if you look at the price performance, um, some that's looking at a growth uh, and strong price performance, I, that's one I'd probably can continue to fade. Continue to fade General Mills. That's up to them. Give us some better numbers uh, in the morning. Finally, Micron. Shares are up 60% this year, interestingly, rivaling FedEx. Uh, and they're hitting a 52-week high late last week. Most of the street is expecting some positive results and looking to higher prices pricing on Micron's memory chips, stabilizing demand for PCs and smartphones, and more inventory stabilization. Although Morgan Stanley warns this rally might have already discounted the upturn. Where do you fall on this one, Delano? Yeah, this is what I'm on my watch list. Um, and currently, obviously, I'm not holding shares right now. But I think the big trade I'm watching is if something's going to be used, uh, obviously, more over time. And I think the big driver in 2024 uh, for Micron and a lot of these memory um, chip companies is going to be AI and how that p- positions their business going forward. I think there's going to be a lot more demand, obviously, for, for companies like Micron and all these different semiconductor companies. And I think that's why I'd be a buyer here. And I think some of that is potentially priced in now with the big, as you mentioned, the big, uh, strong price performance over the last you know several months but I think some of that's not priced in because if you look at the volatile year you know microns had um, especially with the inventory issues and different things of that nature geopolitical issues um, with China um, those are some things that are have been pushing down the price but I think if you look further out um, those are the, the AI demand is definitely that's going to drive the price forward and I All think right. that's the reason why it should be on your watch list indeed D- Delano thank you it'll be a busy 24 hours we appreciate your time today. Delano Sapporo with our trades. That does it for the exchange. Up next on Power uh, Lunch, it's the Gov. New Jersey establishing a formal hub for AI research at Princeton. Governor Phil Murphy will join us to discuss that in a few moments. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of the spring. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.